It's no secret that a major perk to working in development is the salary. Developers are often paid higher than the average salary, and as you move up in a company, you can see significant growth in your income. We all know financial literacy is often skipped in early education, which is why this week we're talking all things financial planning with our special guest, Shannon Lee Simmons, to teach you what you need to know about managing your finances as a high earner. Welcome to the Ladybug Podcast. I'm Kelly. I'm Sydney. I'm Allie. And I'm Emma. And we're debugging the tech industry. All right, Shannon, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me. This is great. I would love to kick things off by learning a little bit more about you and what you do. Sure. So uh, I am a certified financial planner and a chartered investment manager by trade and uh, by credential. But I also uh, founded and own and operate the New School of Finance, which is a fee-only financial planning company in Canada. What does it mean to be fee-only? This is a great question. Uh, So a lot of times people will get financial advice, but um, you you get it from somebody who's selling you your RSPs in Canada, for example, your retirement accounts or your investments. So maybe you don't write, you you don't actually send them an e-transfer or pay for it out of pocket like you would like a lawyer or an accountant. You're paying for it with the investments that you have or with the insurance products that you have. And so inherently someone giving you advice that sells you either investments or insurance is biased, you know? So if you want to ask, can I pay off my mortgage or should I invest? If they're making money off of you from investments, obviously they're, they're biased towards saying, well, let's invest that. <laughs> Interesting. Um, so what, yeah. So what we do is called fee only, which means you pay for our time, similar to like a lawyer or an accountant mm-hmm. where I have no skin in the game financially, whether you pay off your mortgage or invest it. So if I tell you to invest it, it's because I actually think that's the best thing for your holistic financial planning picture rather than where I'm going to get my bonus from. So that's what we do. So where exactly can we find other financial advisors just like you? I know that you're working in Canada, so we're in the U.S., of course. So where could we potentially find uh, other financial advisors that are like you? Yeah, I think, you know, um, anywhere in the world, just popping into a search engine, um, you know, looking specifically for the words fee only financial planner versus the word financial advisor. I think the planning piece is really important as a, a differentiator. And the word fee only also sometimes internationally we're referred to as advice only. Again, because you're paying for advice versus a product. And so if you put that into like a local search engine, you probably come up with a bunch of directories. There's tons of them internationally. Like, you know, they're, 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 I think that it's kind of the financial planning industry is moving towards this. I mean, I've been doing it now for over a decade and the, um, the shifts I've seen and the interest in this in the last six years has been mind blowing. I think more and more people want to pay for advice and then implement elsewhere. Yeah, that makes sense. That's actually, that's what we do. So we have a financial advisor who we just meet with to kind of like pulse check where we are, but we kind of do everything ourselves. That's right. The other thing is in the States, and I don't know if this is specifically to the U.S., uh, we often look for the word fiduciary Yeah, um, is, as for somebody who's kind of legally obligated to act in your best interest as opposed to, as you explained, telling you to invest because they're going to make money from it. Yeah, that's right. And I think also making sure that you're looking for those credentials, right? So someone who's like a certified financial planner, and that's also the same in the U.S. as well. Um, and so that you're, because there's not a lot of regulation, uh, at least in Canada, around who can call themselves a financial planner. And so you really want to make sure that somebody has held that like fiduciary duty and that higher standard of, of care. <laughs> nice. Good to know. For sure. So what exactly does it mean to be a high earner? Because I feel like that could kind of vary by definition. 
A hundred percent. I think you just nailed it. I think it depends <laughs> on what uh, somebody considers a high earner for themselves. So here's where I would say somebody is a high earner. I think there's two perspectives to keep in mind. I think that there's the financial industry and what they consider the elusive day, um, mm. a high earner. So there's this weird acronym. And yeah, I used to work on Bay Street, which is Canada's version of Wall Street. And there's this acronym at the time that used to irk me. Um, it was when you would target young earners and they were called Henry's. And that's actually still for, a term that's used. I'm I'm in e-commerce and we, we use Henry's as a, a description of who's buying high what. High earner, not rich yet. For anyone <laughs> oh, who has never heard that before. I've never heard of that mm-hmm. before. That's fascinating. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. So these would be people that, you know, from like a sales point of view, you would be targeting because they are considered high earners and there's lots of potential. So these are people usually making around six figure plus. Um, and so there's that definition, but that's not the definition that I actually use because... Um, I see with people, I see people from all walks of life uh, because we don't need those high earners or, um, you know, certain assets under management to be, to have, have somebody as a client. I think someone is a high earner when they have enough after tax cash flow or after tax or after deductions, like money coming in on a monthly basis or an annual basis where they can pay their bills in a, in a home that they love, whether it's rented or owned, it's a place that they feel safe, secure, and proud of. That's number one. They have the um, transportation needs met, again, however they want it. So some people love, you know, taking transit and riding bikes. And some people want to own a car that they can drive around. It depends on what you need, but they can do that without stressing about the financial aspect of that. Um, they have their they have insurance in place that's enough to just cover risks. So they can afford to do that if they lose their job or whatever. Like that piece is, is on lockdown. They're saving enough for retirement. So again, what is enough? But they're able to put away money that makes them feel like they have a plan for the long run and that it's it's not putting so much anxiety on the day-to-day grind of life. And last but not least, um, yes, they're paying attention to what they're spending. I mean, I don't think anybody, even if you're a high earner, except for like, you know, Warren Buffett and that kind of level of wealth, you can just make it rain all the time. That's not really a realistic thing. But you have enough spending money that you don't feel broke 24 seven. I think to me, that's a high earner. And here's the catch with that. I see people who have six figure incomes all the time who don't, who I would not consider that because they have leveraged themselves too high with a house they can't really afford or their expenses are too high. So yeah, the number on your bay, on your T4, which is our, our, you know, at tax time, what we get to tell the government what we earn so we can pay taxes. Um, so that number might be high, but are you a high earner if everything you earn is already promised to someone else and you're going into debt? So I think I think high earner, there's a concept of it and then there's a lifestyle. That's a really holistic take. And I, I really appreciate you actually saying that because that's something that I'm still trying to figure out myself when it comes to being a high earner and as a developer. And I think that one of the biggest questions that I see as well as like having myself is whether you should be trying to save more money as the goal to be more uh, of a high earner or pay off your debt first to then kind of help that kind of be a a reduced risk and cost for yourself in the long run. So how do you decide kind of what to do with your money to become a high earner? Yeah, I think that we need to come back to this concept of net worth. Mm-hmm. So net worth is a jargony way of saying like, what do you like, what do you own yeah. at the end of the day? Yeah. So, so, um, you know, it's, your net worth is everything that you own. So all of your assets, um, minus all of your liabilities or everything that you owe. So to use a really quick example, the, you know, the, the really like typical example is, okay, well, I own a house and it's worth $500,000, but my mortgage is 300,000. So 
my net worth is 200,000. So when you say like, oh, that house is worth 500,000, but like if that person's mortgage is super high, that, that their net worth is reduced by that, right? right? And if you are if you're a renter, then it's like, okay, we'll add up everything in your retirement accounts or in your um, savings accounts and then subtract any debts that you have. So if you're in the US and you have a 401k with 100,000 in it, but then you also have student debt of 80,000, then your net worth is 20,000. So I think that that is a really important concept to answer this question because I think it feels really emotionally satisfying to build savings. Mm. We, you know, it's very forward looking. What am I saving for? It's for the future. It's really satisfying. Um, and then to pay off debt, whether it's student debt or credit card debt from something or like line of credit feels yucky. <laughs> so it feels really good to see a thousand dollars go into your retirement account. than it does to see a student line of credit go from 20,000 to 19,000. But I would argue from a financial planning perspective, the net, the impact on your net worth is the exact same. You've, you've improved mm. your net worth by a thousand bucks whether you put it into a savings account or paid off um, $1,000 of principal. So I'm stoked about it either way. But this is why this question is so fraught because I think that, I think people logically know like, yeah, paying down debt is good, but it doesn't have the same emotional win as saving. And so people pay their minimums or struggle with debt in a different way um, because it's not as fun. So I would say, how do you balance it? Well, for me, if we know that your net worth is increasing no matter what, and, and paying off debt is a form of savings, that's like a perspective shift that really needs to happen for people. Um, then I would look at the return on investment. So if you've got a line of credit that's charging you, you know, 6% guaranteed every, every single, like you're paying that monthly interest all the time, what investment product is going to guarantee you 6%? I don't know if there is one that's going to guarantee it. Sure. If you invest it, maybe, but it might also have volatility and go down. So if you look at the math there, um, I think that we can get on side with the mathematics behind paying down debt. And then the other thing that I would, I often will say to people is the actual, the long-term emotional win of paying down debt often trumps the short-term um, win of pay of saving. So like that first initial inertia is hard, but when you see it actually working and you can see the finish line, you really feel like you've accomplished something because debt has a way of making us feel bad with money, even when we're not. I I had to laugh at the, the um, it, what was actually going to give you a six, like guarantee 6% return. It just, it made me laugh because high yield savings accounts used to actually be high yield savings accounts. Like, like Marcus, for example, is now like, a half percent interest. So still better than like a checking account where it's like 0.01%, obviously. Right, yeah. It's still like 50 times that. But it's, it's just, it's kind of funny putting into that perspective. Like there really is no guarantee on that kind of return. No, no, not a guarantee. I think that you can, you know, project and hope for, and sometimes it'll happen, but sometimes it won't. And so, so I think that that word guarantee is really an important one. For sure. So in terms of net worth, I know there are benchmarks that exist on the internet as far as like, here's where you should be based on your age. And I, again, I I know that everyone's living situation is very different, especially, you know, being in a more high earning uh, career path. Yeah. Should we care about these benchmarks? No, Uh, I absolutely think that's like asking, what should I weigh? I think it's the exact same <laughs> bullshit. Sorry, I swear I don't know. No, that's you're fine. Totally fine. Thank you. Thank you for saying <laughs> I that. I didn't check the rating. I didn't check the rating. Um, so I, I think that you can get caught up with trying to meet goals that don't work for you. Um, the comparison game is fraught. The FOMO, the resentment of your own situation, all of this shit is so unhealthy um, for your relationship with money, your relationship with your career, mm. your relationship with your with your colleagues. 
Um, don't focus on something like that. Focus on what you need and how you're going to get that given what you're working with. And then make goals that are realistic within that stratosphere and you will be a happier, healthier person for sure. I have been doing this for a long, long time. And the comparison game is fraught and all of all those benchmarks do are make people afraid. And often they come from the financial industry, which is trying to get you to save more, to make them more money. So the more you terrify people that they don't save enough, the more money they're going to throw in at RRSP season in Canada or like they're going to panic and do that. Um, and so, yes, saving is good, all of course. And, and nobody, we, we have to have boundaries and, and there has to be a, a concerted mindful effort with money. I'm not saying that, but what I'm saying is these like flat line, here's where you should be by this age mm-hmm. is, is no, please don't. Anyone listening to this, please don't pay attention to that. Get something customized for yourself because that's the only way that you're actually gonna be able to celebrate your own wins. So then that gives me uh, kind of a segue to another question. Where should you keep your money? Like, I, I know that having it just kind of sitting in a bank in a savings account isn't the greatest, but like, should it just, should we keep it liquid? Should we keep it in investments? Uh, how, how do you think that should work? Yeah, this is like the million dollar question, but I will give some, I'll give some feedback on, on that. So I think the first thing that everybody wants to do is check in and see if you have any consumer debt. I know that that's like the age old boring yawn mm. thing to say. Um, but if you have, you know, consumer debt, that's like charging 19% on a credit card or a really high line of credit. I'm not talking about like a car loan or a mortgage. I'm talking about consumer debt that's expensive um, and also causing that like um, chaos or feeling like you don't have control over your money because that that feeling alone is really detrimental to your finances. So so focusing money there first, if you do have free ca- cash, like after you pay your bills and you have your spending life um, and now you're like, hey, I have, you know, I can do something with this thousand dollars a month or $500 a month or whatever that chunk is after you're, you've paid your bills and, you're, and, and you've eaten um, and like lived your life. Um, so what do I do with that? So let's put it onto consumer debt first. Um, because it is building your net worth. So you're not going to have a great retirement if you are constantly sinking into debt. It's all going to catch up to you. You're not going to qualify for as much of a mortgage that you might want to qualify for if you have bad credit from debt. Like it impacts everything. Um, and so let's deal with that consumer debt first. Again, not talking about mortgage or, um, and even student debt. I mean, I think that that's more of a, like a conversation to be had, but I'm not, I think some student debt, you can just like, pay the minimum, let it ride. Cause it depends on how much, like if, especially with some, some people in the U S that have like, um, I often say a mortgage on their brain, you know, right, it could yeah. be a six figure amount. Are you never going to save anything until that thing's gone? Yeah. Oh my God. So I think, I think student debt is something that I can, you know, depends on the person, depends on their income, depends on the situation, but consumer debt. No, it's a, it's a big one that we want to tackle first. Then we want to make sure that we have an emergency account, which again, until the pandemic, uh, didn't get a lot of love, not very sexy. Like, you know, putting it into a high interest rate savings account that's liquid felt boring and annoying, especially when you hear about people making much more by investing their money or doing um, other, you know, more risky things. However, that emergency account can act like a blanket of calm if you lose your job or if there is a pandemic or if your health takes a dive. And again, someone who's seen that happen in real time over the years, you, I, you start preaching about it more because you see how important it is when you when you look back at how many people, like I'll never forget when the pandemic hit, I had over 350 meetings during the first lockdown and, and and the people who had emergency accounts were just less stressed. It doesn't mean that they weren't stressed. They were just less stressed. And I think that is huge. Um, so consumer debt, 
a little bit of mad money for your emergency account that you're stored away just in case the worst happens. And then once those two things are on lockdown, that's when we start to play with the more fun investment stuff. And then at that point, I think like, yeah, throw it into your long-term accounts, your retirement accounts, whatever. Um, And you want to make sure that you are investing it at that point, because that's when keeping it liquid and interest rates is silly because that's the money that you're trying to grow. And so because the time horizon is much longer, you can handle a little bit more volatility. Whereas, you know, if your roof leaks tomorrow, Mm. you can't handle the volatility on your $2,000 emergency account. So I think it's like kind of in phases how we prioritize it. And then we get to the really fun stuff once you kind of got your house in order. Nice. Nice. In terms of the emergency account, do you have a recommendation for how much somebody should have in there? Like you usually hear like between three and six months worth of expenses. Yeah. I feel like that's so unrealistic for so many people. Really? Yeah. Right? Imagine your life costs four grand a month. What are you supposed to have 16 G's to steal it? Like like that that to me sounds insane. I, I feel like the average person, high earner or not, the amount of time you would take to get to that goal, crazy. So here's what I here's what I would say. I, I think yes, I am I am forced to say you should have three months worth of living expenses. This is what everybody expects me to say. And I think if you inherit a bunch of money or you get a massive payout and you can, here's my fifteen thousand dollar emergency fund. Great. Like if you can do that, that's awesome. You'll feel very secure. What I really think you should be thinking about is an emergency account works in two ways. One, we want that initial amount, like a like a little amount. And I usually say, if people are not sure, start with the idea of five grand, like a $5,000 cushion. That Would that $5,000 pay your bills for one month or, or like six weeks and allow you to eat for, for at least one month or six weeks? Like, it, would it pay for most typical house emergencies or most typical, like, oh my God, this broke or like, oh my God, this happened. Those, oh my God moments. Would it pay for most of the typical ones? I'm not talking about like, well, I need to spend 15,000 for a roof tomorrow. Mm. I'm talking about the like, oh shit moments, right? Start there. And if you feel like it's not enough for your life, then, you know, try maybe 7,500 is the right amount. If you feel like that's overkill and that would see you through you know, maybe you're a fire person, which is like, you know, financial independence to like um, retire early. And that would be six months alone. So starting with five grand and kind of seeing where that would go um, and then ratcheting it up for, for trying to make it at least, I think, six weeks. Um, if you're in tech, you probably have, you're probably able to get a job faster if you got laid off or like think about what your emergency is and how long you'd have to go without it. Uh, without income. And then the second piece that I think is actually more important that doesn't get talked about a lot is that it's not about reaching $5,000 and then chilling. It's actually about actively putting money away every month, 200 bucks, 150 bucks, whatever that is, to build on top of that so that you continue to use it above that 5,000. You kind of keep that 5,000 as your nugget. So a great example is I had this client who was like, he had his 5,000 and then he kept putting $200 away into this slush fund or emergency account or whatever you want to call it. And then like his laptop broke and then this happened and then this happened and then this happened. When we met the next year, he was like, I'm so mad. I was putting all this money aside and I only, I still am back at the 5,000. I'm like, yeah, great. That means it's working. Good for you. You didn't put that on debt. And he was like, oh, thinking because I'm saving it's supposed to be accumulating, but an emergency account doesn't work like that. It's there to keep you out of debt. It's not there to build your net worth. That makes a lot of sense. Okay. So I have a fun question. One thing that I I personally like talking about, and this is around the idea of lifestyle creep. So especially if you're maybe a second career in development, maybe you weren't making, you know, 75, 1,000 a year, six figures a year, and suddenly you are, and then suddenly you have all this money available to you. It's really easy to kind of creep into spending a lot more of that. So 
How do you balance avoiding lifestyle creep, but also being able to enjoy your money? Yeah, I, this is something that a lot of my clients who are in tech deal with. Um, I like, especially as that that second career thing is so real. Um, <laughs> and so, so I think that there's two things that happen. One, people who have been living on the cheap for so long, all of a sudden they have, they're either like, I can't spend anything, and they almost hoard money. Um, and that's from like, you know, maybe a decade of scraping by and not even knowing how to have a lifestyle creep because they're so used to being hand to mouth, um, which I don't think is the healthy way to to, to live either. Um, and then there's the other, which is like. Make it rain. So, so I think that it's a balance. I think in the short run, if you're starting to earn this money, um, I think that it's you can give yourself permission to. I I, I feel like the the lifestyle upgrades that um, make you feel safe, secure, and proud. Mm-hmm. I think that's like those are the words I, I I always come back to. So if somebody has been not earning a lot for a long time and and you know, they've been renting with roommates and they're very frustrated about that. Like that would be an immediate, like let's, you don't have to keep, you You have the income now. We yeah. can spend a little bit of it to like make you live in a place that you are excited about. Cause some people love that and they don't want to leave it. Some people are like, I can't wait to get out and money is the only reason I'm here. And so that would be something that would be an immediate like emotional return on investment. Like that's good. And like, again, transportation tends to be one of those upgrades too that happens or planning to buy a house. Um, and, and like trying to work out what, trying not to be house poor or something now that you've got this income and maybe buying a house was never on the table for you before. And now all of a sudden it is. And so I think, I think that it's, um, striking the balance comes down to, uh, mapping it out. I, I know that that sounds ridiculous, but having a plan. So what can you spend? without guilt. I think that's like really the the emotion that we're trying to avoid here mm. because you should be able to spend some of your hard-earned money without guilt. I think, you know, we're not just on this planet to save. So what can you spend without guilt before you put yourself in a situation where you're actually making yourself nervous again? So you're just as fine, you're just as financially scared as you were before you were earning the money because now you're not saving anything, but you feel like you should be. And so I think I think that it's about getting that like customized boundary for yourself, making sure that your housing and your transportation game is fine, and then carving out a chunk of your money that is for guilt-free spending on whatever it is. And then, but also just making sure that there you are being strategic with the money that you're putting aside. And that will give you that nice balance between I'm allowed to spend this. Yeah. I can spend this without feeling guilty about it because I'm doing this. Okay. That's that's a great way to put it. Yeah. I was talking to my my financial advisor yesterday, actually, and I was like, can we stop flying coach yet? <laughs> that was my question. <laughs> and his point was really good. Like, you know, for us, it has always been like, if we upgrade our flights, that means we're taking away from something else that we could be spending that money on. He was like, well, change your mindset about it. Instead, save to buy more expensive flights. And then, as you said, you can kind of go about it guilt-free because you literally save to do that specific thing. Yeah. And if you're doing the the like other stuff, the other work, like you're putting money into your retirement accounts, you're building those emergency accounts, paying off the debt, then you, then who cares? Like, you know what I mean? You're not sacrificing anything. Uh, like that's, that's important. You're still paying your bills and you're putting yourself up for the long run. So like, go for it. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you for that. Uh, I know that we have an international audience. So without getting too specific about the different types of retirement accounts out there, what kind of general advice would you give to our larger audience on uh, how, how they can figure out ways to save for retirement, the the different type of ways that they can save for retirement? 
Yeah, I think that there's a couple things that you want to just think about and you, you'll have to like search this out in your own home, home country. Um, so you want to make sure it's tax sheltered. So most of the like, you know, G20 countries have some sort of tax sheltered um, investment accounts and a tax shelter means let's, so, you know, you buy something for $10, you sell it for $15, you've got a $5 gain. And so if it's a tax shelter, as long as it's in that account, you're not paying tax on that five bucks. So what happens when it comes out is different depending on the account, but as long as it's in there and it's a tax shelter, you're not paying tax on the money that you're earning while you go. So, you know, um, that it can be really helpful. So most countries have that. So making sure that it's a tax shelter. The other thing that you want to be looking at is whether or not you have an account at your disposal, that would be a tax deduction. So that's different than a tax shelter. Um, so in Canada, the RSP and the 401k, I believe in the US, are examples of that where, you know, if you make $100,000 a year and you put $10,000 into um, a tax deduction, like, or into an account that qualifies, your contributions qualify as a tax deduction, well, now you're only going to pay tax on $90,000. So you might get a refund of tax, or you might owe less at tax time if you're self-employed. So that can be a really good tax saving strategy while you're in these high earning years. And then when you're in retirement, yes, you might pay tax on the money when it comes out, but at a much lower rate. So that's the second thing I'd be looking for. So tax sheltering, tax deductions for that tax planning piece, especially if you're a high earner. Um, and then last but not least, I think you just want to make sure that you're putting enough away. And again, this is that like, don't listen to those blueprints. This would be somewhere where I would really seek out a customized, I mean, this is where I am biased. I am biased towards getting unbiased advice financially. Um, I, I, I think that the one-time expense of paying for someone to sit down and map out where you're going and what you're capable of doing. And maybe you actually think you have to put away more than you actually do. Maybe, you know what I mean? Like, so like there might be some relief in that. Um, and, and with a couple of tweaks, you can make the most out of your money so that you can still have a life. And, and so I think getting that number for yourself and for your household, that is, is so important so that you have full faith that you're doing it um, strategically and you're also doing it like uh, doing enough. That makes sense. So I have I have a question, something that my husband and I actually kind of battled with for a long time before finally seeing a financial advisor. Uh, there's obviously a cost to seeing somebody about this. When is the right time to actually see somebody, I guess, um, where you're actually going to get the most benefit out of the, the cost that you're paying? Well, it depends on the cost, I think. So one thing that like at New School Finance, we try to be really accessible. And I don't mean that. I, what I mean is that it can be really expensive. So I've tried to take a model that makes it accessible to people who, who aren't able to spend like $3,000 on a plan, which is bananas. Um, and so like, you know, a $3,000 retirement plan, if you're just starting out, may not be appropriate. That, you know what I mean? Like so much is going to change over the next 35 years for you. How can you make a plan for 35 years from now today? Um, so you might want to find a planner who's able to do smaller, more affordable meetings while you're in these building years where your situation is changing constantly. Mm. Um, so there's that piece. And so that, so making sure it's affordable and trying to, and I think that there are those models out there. They're just not at maybe the, the, the norm. Uh, the other thing that I would say is uh, I get asked a question like that you just said a lot, like, when is it to, when, when do you start? I, I also liken that to like, well, I don't want to go to the gym until I get fit. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. like what? And so, so, but I know that that's like a common thing. I've, I've actually had people say to me before, like, well, I don't want, you know, they'll whisper it. Like, I don't want to, I don't want to come in until I got my financial house in order. I'm like, that is exactly what I'm here right. for. And I, I'll say sometimes to people like, you know, like an esthetician who's like seen it yeah. all. And you're like, I'm sorry. Yeah. And they're like, Girl, please, like, it's like, it's like the same thing. I'm like, I've seen everything. You cannot shock me. Like, 
my job isn't to shame you or to shock or to be shocked. My job is to look at a situation and find creative solutions. And so, so like, but there is this shame with money that, that can happen. So long way of saying, I think everyone could benefit from doing it tomorrow Mm. at the right price. So, so making sure that what you're getting is actually helpful for the next five years. I think that right there um, is a really good way to like navigate whether this is worth it or not. And then, you know, if it's helpful in the next 12 months, that's even more valuable because you can input, it's like, you can see the results of it. Mm. And the other thing to keep in mind is if you're paying out of pocket for something is often you won't need an annual check-in unless things are really rapidly shifting in your life. So often you can pay once and then come back in like three years. And so if you amortize that out over three years, it's really it's really not that. And I often say to people like, what would you pay your therapist? It's like, you know what yeah. I mean? It's like for that financial peace of mind. That's, that's a good way to think about it. Um, the, the next thing I guess I can segue into this is that, um, there are, I feel like a lot of people that are in the tech industry. I know myself, I've been interested in it. Um, the fire movement, like having to mm-hmm. like, retire early, try and invest as much as you can uh, of your salary. I've definitely started kind of looking into it myself, but what are your thoughts on it? And do you have clients, you can't say too much, but do you have clients that are like interested in that or trying to put their like financial kind of like independence in that way? Yeah, absolutely. I have, um, I have a toss up between it. I find, um, my actual philosophy is that something like the fire movement works for a very small population portion of the population. Um, so a lot of people, um, can't actually follow it in real life because like, you know, there might be daycare or like, um, like a mental health issue that they, they, you know, they can't literally spend that little. Um, and so I think that fire is great for some people to actually follow. What I think is groovy about the fire movement is that I think it put saving, on the radar for people in an extent, which, you know, people will dilute down and take what they will from a movement and implement it into their own life. So I think it was really great from that point of view, as long as people aren't feeling like, you know, um, frustration of, of their own failure to follow it that intensely. Um, the other thing I think about fire is that I think it speaks to a broader issue of, um, this feeling of semi hopelessness about the future that our generation is dealing with, with like climate change and the chaos of like, you know, global politics, especially in the last like four years. And I think that, I think that there is this sense of automation that maybe you won't have a job in 15 years. And so there's this desperation to make sure that you make hay while the sun is shining, that you get out. And I also think it speaks to burnout in the tech industry Mm. that, um, you know, yes, you're making lots of money, but at what cost to your mental health? And so there's this like, get in, get out, be intense about it. And then you can do, then you can finally relax. You can finally be you. You can finally take care of yourself. So I have issues with it. If it's, if that's the escape that it's offering someone, then I think that, you know, you're still going to have to do that level of, work or, or, or being militant with yourself for a decade, at least, even if you're earning a lot, it's, it's a long time. And like, at what cost, at what price, like, what's the bigger issue that you're escaping from? I think that, I think that like, is this a fear-based decision or a joy-based decision? I think, I think that's something that to ask yourself, if you're interested in fire, I have a lot of clients who are Burgos. They're into it. I love the Marie (laughs) Kondo vibes that you're giving with this right now. Just that, that makes me feel good about this. 
I think that everybody, there isn't one right way to do money. And I think that maybe is like a newer way to think about money um, because people think it's math and it's very black and white and it's not at all. We're human beings. We make emotional decisions. 90% of our life is made emotionally and then 10% is a spreadsheet. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. I love that. I, I love how much focus you've put, you know, through this entire interview was on like on the emotional side of things because you're absolutely right. I mean, it, money is very much an emotional topic. Yes, I'm also a certified life coach, and I think that. Oh well, then there you go. I always make, <laughs> yeah, I always make the joke that I'm like, just like I sit there with, yeah. So this is a financial planning meeting, right? <laughs> it's not I'm just like coaching people. I love it. I love it. <laughs> That's a good combination. Yeah, it's a rare one. It's a rare one, but um, an important one, I think, for sure. So, really common in the tech world are working for startups. And they don't always have a lot of capital to work with in terms of salaries. So two kinds of questions here. What are options in restricted stock units? And at like when should you consider potentially taking equity for a decrease in salary? Yeah. Okay. So I think that there's a couple things. One, the distinction between an RSU versus a stock option. So um, RSUs are like free money, essentially. So you know, you get an option to buy uh, or you get vested shares, kind of whether you like it or not. So you don't have to buy them specifically. Um, you're you're granted them, and then there's the vesting period. And then after the vesting period, whatever those shares are, they're yours. And so there's almost a guaranteed gain as long as they're not completely at zero. Uh, there's a guaranteed gain because you put no money out. I think that's like a really important distinction. And then once they've vested, you can sell at some point and they can translate into cash or you can keep them um, as, as shares. So that's that's the one piece of RSU. Stock option is different. You pay for it. You pay for the option to, to like buy these stocks later. So an example of this is let's say that you buy the stock option to uh, buy shares in your company at $20. And then there's also still a vesting period. And then by the time you're, it's vested, it's like the market value of those stocks is a hundred bucks. Well, now you have the option to buy them at 20. Mm. So that is, that's a gain for you. Mm. And that's the stock option. So you've put money out on the bet that the future value is going up. So I think stock options are really good. Um, if you believe, so RSUs are great because it's free, it's free money, essentially, unless the company goes completely you know, under, under. Yeah. <laughs> um, stock options are stock options can be very good if you think that there's this massive trajectory in the future, but there's more of a risk there because you're, you're betting on the fact that the company is going to, the, the stock options will be worth more than whatever your option to buy them, the price that you're, you're the exercise price. And then there can also be an expiration date that comes with options. So that's kind of the difference there. And then making the, the, the decision between salary versus RSU versus salary and stock option, I think is a deeply personal one. So I would make sure that you could at least pay your, your crack the nut right. with the salary before you start taking hits on salary. Um, and that's because what I, uh, you know, if you're not able to pay your bills um, and like have a sustainable level of, of some spending, then you're probably going to go into credit card debt as well, which is going to be fraught and, and, you know, those things have a vesting period. So how long is the vesting period? If it's two years, can you live for two years like that? You know what I mean? Like wh where is that line in the sand? But if we're talking about a situation where the salary is enough to, you know, pay your bills, have a sustainable life for the, the, the vesting period, at that point, I do think it comes down to, you know, an RSU decision is a little bit easier because you are very confident that like you're gonna, you're kind of getting these for free, right? Like you're, you're being gifted shares after a certain vesting period, whereas the stock option is a bit more of a bet. 
Um, so I think it comes down to you and how much you actually believe in the company and where it's going uh, and, and like what the, what the plans are after the vesting period. I've seen a lot of people make a lot of money off of both of those um, situations in the tech industry. So I'm not afraid of them at all. I just think, I, and I think that they can be a really good way also to feel like you're part of something because you're at the end of the day, what the company is worth is, is a reflection of your efforts. So often employees don't get to be that close to, to it. And, in, and that's a really rare opportunity. And as an employer, that's also pretty cool that your employees would care that much. Um, so at the same, but at the same time, just making sure that you're not lighting yourself financially on fire in, in to, to get those, that access to those shares that are still, you know, I don't want to say a risk, but not guaranteed. That makes sense. Speaking of shares, I have to ask, what are your thoughts? Kelly's <laughs> laughing right now. What are your thoughts about these Wall Street bets, Redditors? Oh my gosh. And this GME stock. I, yeah, I know yeah. people that have gotten like a couple hundred, couple thousand dollars from this, but like, what, what's your take on this as a financial coach? Okay. So I think, I think that there's good and bad, just same with the fire stuff. Okay. So I think that there's a good and bad thing that happened here. So the good news is that this got everybody talking about stocks, which I think is wonderful. Um, I think that that went around the world and people are interested in, in trading for the first time and people that might've been nervous about it just took the, just did it anyways. And then now are feeling that. So that's a cool thing that's happened because of it. Wall Street bets as a forum on Reddit, even before all this happened. Horrible. Was like it is crazy. <laughs> <laughs> it's crazy. Also, it's like completely, you know, it's it's like, yeah, I'll hold that opinion. But what I'm going to say is the kinds of people that were in there were people who really had a high risk tolerance. So they have this thing called YOLOing, where they put like their life savings on one stock and then try to trade it at these microcosms, um, of, like these little minor, minor increases. But if you have a minor increase with all of your money, you could make some money off of that, right? Um, but that's really risky. And then people would also post their like, like lost, lost yeah. points, what they call it. Like... <laughs> You know, they would post their like life savings gone and people would either berate them or applaud them. And so at, from anybody who is new to investing or even a seasoned vet, I would tell you that's terrifying. Like th that kind of volatility with that amount of money is, is never advisable yeah. and also really scary. However, I think that um, taking an amount of money that if it went to zero is like, okay, and throwing it into to anything. This is beyond Wall Street right, Bets, okay? Right. And, 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 tr and trying your hand at like some stocks and DIYing it um, in a safe place where if it does go to zero, you're not going to beat yourself up. It's not it's not um, your life savings. Right, right. Uh, I think that that is a really fun activity. I think you really learn your risk tolerance that yeah. way. I think you understand how the stock market works in a way that it always seems, it's like fixing a carburetor in a car or taking it in. Like right, you right. understand how your car works <laughs> if you fix it once. That doesn't mean that you'll never pay someone to fix your car again. It just means you'll understand it. Right. So you'll know what the value is, you know, the value for your dollars. So I have no problem with people investing on their own. I think it's great, mm. but just using an amount of money that while you're learning, um, you know, the stakes are not that high for you so that you don't have to like blame yourself forever because I've had some clients that lost a lot of money. Uh, they got caught up in the hype. And so, uh, which is, you know, it happens. And again, those emotional decisions versus those more like logical ones, like people got caught up in the message, which was a great message, which is like, have you Wall Street and you can't get away with this forever. And right. like, you know, that's great. So people wanted to vote with their dollars in that sense. So I think, I think some good came from it. I really do. And I think that most people should not be, you should treat it as gambling. If you're going to take, um, that kind, like those kinds of options and betting, you should treat it as gambling and therefore use an amount of money that you're cool if it goes to zero and have some fun. Right. Amazing. 
Uh, are there any tools that you recommend that people use to help manage their finances? The apps on your phone, I think, are very powerful. So wherever you bank or your financial institution, having like knowing where your money is and how much you have in your checking account and your like um, and what's on your credit card and stuff in real time at the drop of a dime is is the kind of clarity that. Um, that just didn't exist even like 15 years ago. Like there, you know, there's that old joke about opening bank statements and like, that's like not a thing. Um, so I think the knowing what, where your money's at on a month by month or paycheck to paycheck basis is huge. Um, because that kind of clarity, you'll, you should know when, when to stop and start and when you're, when it's tight and when it's not. And so it just like keeps you in the know. So I think even utilizing those is, is great. Um, great idea. And then I also think that I'm, I'm not a huge fan of like the budgeting apps. Um, really again no again I think that I think they lead to failure I think they for most people I think you know you sit there and you you put your 50 categories in and then your app buzzes you it's like hey you overspent on coffee and then you like steal from pants like and like move the money in there it's just (laughs) such a game it's a fraught game you can't predict every single dollar in your life you like you don't know what you're gonna spend on groceries next week um, and so I think trying to pretend like you can sets us all up to fail and then you feel bad with money and you quit altogether. So uh, a lot of times those apps work wonders for certain people. So that there's going to be people listening to this who are like, I couldn't live without this app or whatever. And that's wonderful for you. In my experience, most of the time with a lot of people, it's a lot of work that leads to them giving up and then feeling like stupid about mm-hmm. money. Um, so what I, I usually suggest, and I, I do talk about this in in one of my books is like having a hard limit where one checking account or one credit card is like where you can spend money without guilt. And then with the other checking account is where all of your money goes to die. And that's like your rent or your mortgage or car payment or whatever it is. And then that's a hard limit. And then as long as it's within that spending account, just like blow it to zero without guilt. Who cares? I'm going to tell my boyfriend that. Oh my gosh. That's perfect (laughs) because he's all about like being on a, you need a budget and everything. And I'm just like, fuck this noise. Like this is so confusing for me. And like, I feel like I'm in like a junior, like an accountant, like trying to do that. Thank you very much for that clarity. I appreciate that. You should read Worry-Free Money. Yeah, (laughs) it, it, it is. That has been one of the biggest unlocking things with my clients, with myself, that allows that you still to like be on your financial game, but without all the extra labor, without the labor intensity. Perfect. That's awesome. So we love to end all of our episodes with shout outs. Um, you can shout out literally anything. Um, what would you like to shout out? I think I would like to shout out, well, A, this podcast, which is great. I think it's important (laughs) that you're talking about um, financial literacy, especially in the tech industry where there are that high earning pieces. So you don't worry about it as much necessarily. So I want to shout that out. I also think that um, we already did it. I think that the, I think that I'll, I'd shout out the Wall Street Bets um, thing for happening because I think it just brought stocks to the forefront of the conversation in a way that it just like it just couldn't before. Um, and I think people again take what they want to learn from that and then apply it realistically in their own life. So I think that that's good as well. And I think I don't know. I just want to I just want to shout out everybody in the tech industry too. I, I have so many females in tech that have earned money from like stock options or RSUs or whatever. And that had that second career that really has opened doors for so many people like men too, but I've really seen it have big impacts on a lot of my female clients. And that's been really exciting to see as well. Amazing. Cindy, what's your shout out this week? Yeah. So since we've been talking a lot about just 
financial advice and things anyways, I've actually been reading this book by um, one of my friends on Black Tech Twitter. Uh, Simone Bees actually has a book on Amazon as well that it's called The Financial Starter Kit. And she also has a coaching program where she's helping people trying to figure out what they want to do when it comes to kind of accelerating their money um, and figuring out like better ways to kind of like help themselves like gain multiple six figures. So The Financial Starter Kit, I really love. I have been enjoying it so far, and I'm super excited to hear about your book, Shannon. I'm really like ready to read this, so I am just I'm trying to just get as much kind of in as possible when it comes to my financial resources to like help me figure out like what I need when it comes to my stuff. So yeah, that's awesome. I I went totally left field on my. <laughs> Shout out this week. No judgment. Um, speaking of spending money guilt-free, uh, I want to shout out Coffee Collective. It's a, a roastery in Denmark that I get my coffee from oh. on a subscription. Then my, my coffee comes from Denmark. Very, very nice. That's awesome. Yeah. It's delicious. It's some of my absolute favorite coffee. <laughs> What's special about them? Like, what do you like about them the most? Um, one, is delicious. That helps. Uh, two, it they tend to lean more lighter roast and... I love lighter roast coffee. And three, they're very particular about who they actually get their beans from. Um, so they're, you know, focusing on, you know, appropriate labor and everything like that. So, yeah, love it, love it, love it. Um, okay, so last question. Where can we find you on the internet? The best place to find me uh, is newschoolfinance.com. And that's where the online courses are, the books are, the um, like the fee-only financial planning. It's all in the menu. You can just click on what you need. Amazing. All right. Well, that's it. Shannon, thank you so much for your time. This was an amazing episode. Yes, it was. Oh, thank I'm you so, so much. happy to be here. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. This is great. So if you like this episode, tweet about it. We'll be selecting one tweeter to win a copy of Shannon's book, Worry-Free Money, this week. Woo-hoo. We post new podcasts every Monday, so make sure you subscribe to be notified. We also have a YouTube channel now, so I keep on saying that our YouTube link is youtube.com slash ladybookpodcast. <laughs> I don't know if it actually is. But it's we're about go to be it. this week, hopefully. <laughs> Perfect. Okay. And lastly, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We love seeing those reviews. So we'll, uh, we'll see you next Yay, week. Yay, bye.